And we're going to talk about a prayer that the Apostle Paul actually prayed for this church at Philippi. It really is a prayer for love, which seems a little strange maybe to some of us. Because when we pray, usually it's because there's some crisis, some emergency. There's a physical problem. There's a financial problem. There's a relational problem. And so we, we decide at that point we need to pray. But for Paul, prayer was a consistent part of his life. You know, I don't believe anything defines the state of your spiritual life like your prayer life. Your prayer life really does give an indicator as to where you are in your walk with Christ. And if that's convicting for you, maybe you might want to dig in a little bit on your prayer life. Uh, but I do believe that that's really accurate. How often we pray and what we actually pray for says something about our priorities. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to pray about the love of the church at Philippi. You know, love is no trivial subject. I think when we hear about love, our first thought kind of gravitates to love songs and sort of the sappy, syrupy sentiment that love causes in our culture. But love is the absolute pinnacle of the Christian life. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He writes an entire chapter about love. And at the end of the chapter, he says, But now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is, say it out loud, the greatest is love. The greatest virtue in the Christian life is love. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be defined by. All the other fruit of the Spirit modifies how we love. Not only that, but Jesus said that love was the signal virtue. It was what would be the indicator of our love and loyalty for him. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. And here's how it is. If you have love for one another. Jesus said that love was like the uniform of the Christian life. It's what identifies us as part of his team. But we've got big questions about love in our world today. We, we've got really big questions about what it means to love, what, uh, how our love ought to be expressed. And uh, even uh, outsiders to the Christian faith look at those of us who are committed followers of Jesus and believe our Bible, and, and they say we're not people of love. They say we're, we, we're hateful sometimes. So we need to understand what the Bible talks about when it talks about love. Since it's that important, since it's the greatest Christian virtue, it's the uniform of the Christian faith, and our world questions our understanding of it, let's dig in on this this morning for just a few minutes. Look at verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
This passage looks like it might be about a lot of things, but because he uses a lot of different types of words there and things that he's praying for. But when you look at it in the Greek New Testament, what Paul is talking about is he says, what I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you about your love, first of all. All the other words in this passage actually point back to that prayer for love. All of them modify what Paul is talking about as he prays for the love of the Philippian church. So what does he pray about their love? He says, first of all, I'm praying that your love will be plentiful. That your love will be plentiful. That there will just be an abundance of love. He says in verse 9, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Maybe the first thing we ought to do is define love biblically. You know, after all, love is very familiar to us. We all want to be loved. We all deep down know we ought to love others. And yet it's a little bit of a tricky proposition for most of us. And I think part of that is because in the English language, we have the same word to express our affection for people and pizza. I mean, come on, that's a, it's, the same, it's the same word. I love my wife. I love pizza. We obviously don't mean the same thing by that, but we're saying the same thing. The interesting thing about the Greek New Testament is that there were four words for love in the Greek language, which is really helpful because it, it narrows the scope just a little bit. It makes it a little bit more specific. The first word is the word eros, not the word used in this passage. Not the word used most of the time in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's never used in the Bible. But the word eros is the word for romantic word. We get the word erotic from that. And it's, uh, it's really a word for physical affection in love many times. So appropriately used, it would be the love between a husband and a wife. The second word is the word storge. Storge is a rare word used in the Bible, but it was a common word in the Greek language, and that is, it was the love of family. It's the love that a parent has for a child or a child has for a parent, which is obviously different from the romantic love of a husband and wife, and so you need a different word to express that love of family. So they, they help us out with that. The third word translated love, which is used quite often in the Bible, is the word philea. Philea is uh, we, we, the city of Philadelphia. Is That word is used in the title of that. It means city of brotherly love. Phileo means a brotherly kind of love, the love of friendship, the love of fellowship. It's, it's the love of camaraderie. It's, it's the love that you would have on a team for one another. And, and it is, in a sense, some of the, in some ways, love that we ought to express in our church toward one another. It's neighborly love in a lot of ways. But the fourth word is the word that is used most often in the Bible, and it's the word used here. It is the Greek word agape. Agape is a word of sacrifice. It's love that is willing to give. It's love that is willing to go beyond. It is, it is the highest form of love, and it is the love that God expresses. When Jesus said, no man has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. He was defining, he was defining agape love in that moment. He was saying, let me show you what love is. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to give for you. In some ways, without 
expectation that some people would ever respond to his sacrifice. That is biblical, agape, God-like love. And that's the kind of love that we are called on to cultivate in our lives because love is a fruit of the Spirit. It grows. It matures. It learns how to be expressed in productive and constructive ways. And so Paul says that he's praying that that agape, that that God kind of love would abound more and more. The word abound means overflow. And he says, it's, it's a good thing if you're filled to the full measure with love. But what I really want is I want your love to overflow to all people. I want you to have a growing love. I want you to have a love that is flowing toward other people. And I want it to abound more and more. Not too long ago, I went back into my, my bathroom and I, I was going to shave and kind of get ready for the day. And um, my phone rang. And it was my friend Elijah Soratow from Romania. And so I, I, I said, I'll answer the phone, but you know, the water's warming up to shave, and so I'll just leave it running. And I, I answer the phone, and you just got to understand and know my friend Elijah, and he might even be watching from Romania. Uh, and if you are, hi, Elijah and family. But um, we're talking, and Elijah can talk, okay? And he, we have this kind of long conversation, and the, and the water keeps running. Well, I did not know this because I, I really thought that that little overflow, uh, you know, kind of catch a hole there in the, in, the, in the sink would catch enough. But if you've got the water wide open, it, it, it will not catch enough. And I walked in and into the bathroom. Of course, I, actually, I didn't walk in. My wife walked into the bathroom and screamed. And I came around the corner and my sink was abounding more and more. It was overflowing with water all over the bathroom floor. We get the shop back out. We're vacuuming it up, all that kind of stuff. Now, that's a mess. But when your love overflows, it doesn't make a mess. I'm going to tell you what it makes. It makes you attractive to people who are far from Jesus. See, the question uh, that's kind of vague about this is when he says, I want your love to abound, who's he talking that we ought to love? Who's he talking about? Well, there's no doubt that he's writing to the church at Philippi. So he says, I want your love for one another to abound. He says, I want you to love one another. Paul wrote this kind of prayer to a lot of churches. One was the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, he writes, And may the Lord cause you to increase, and here it is, and abound in love for one another. He says, I want you to love one another. Surely our love inside the church needs to be, needs to be flowing and growing. Because the church ought to be sort of this, this incubator for our love. We ought to learn to love one another in our church. But Paul did not stop with the people inside my church. Not just the people that I like and that I agree with. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. That you're, you're, you increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. He says, I want you to learn to love all kinds of people, not just the ones that you have something in common with, not the, just the ones who believe the stuff you believe, not just the people who uh, are, are, are kind of look like you and act like you and affirm your values. I want you to learn to love all people, regardless of their race or religious background 
or the way they see morality. I want you to love all people. Paul says, not only that, but I want you to love your enemies. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Paul calls on us to love people who are actually hateful, the people who say hateful and horrible, harmful things about you, about you as a Christian. Jesus said, love them. Maybe a, a simple definition of love is in order. You've heard me say this before. I got this from Josh McDowell. It really helped me. What is love? Love is an action. Love is an action with another person's best interest at heart. That's what love is. Love isn't just words, but it's actually taking action. God loves. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world with all those sinners in it. For God so loved a world filled with lost, sinful people who would rebel against him that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So let me kind of get to the crux of this part. Followers of Jesus are commanded to love other Christians, our neighbors, our enemies, and those who are far from God. Short, a short sentence, love everybody. I mean, that's just what, that's what the Bible tells us. We are to love all kinds of people. There's a reason for that. No one has ever been judged or argued or berated into the Christian faith. I have never seen a social media argument play out where at the end of it, somebody says, you're right, I'm wrong, I repent and ask Jesus to be my Savior. I've never seen that argument on social media. They don't go that way. Nobody has ever been argued or berated into the Christian faith. By the way, if you can be argued into the faith, somebody else can, be argue, can argue you out. I've never seen anybody argued into the faith. I've never seen anybody screamed at into the faith. But I have seen people loved into the faith. One of the great examples of that is a couple of guys who are politically at opposite ends of the spectrum. For many years, a conservative guy named Cal Thomas, we've actually had him speak in our church before, would uh, be on a news channel, and he and a guy named Bob Beckel, who was kind of at the, the, the uh, left end of the spectrum, the kind of the, the liberal end of the spectrum, they would argue on, on, on Fox News or CNN. They, they've been on both networks. And, of course, the, what the anchor does, the, the guy who's the Fox News reader, the CNN guy, he just throws out some red meat and some proposal that's in Congress. And those two, they'd just go at one another. I mean, they would really go at one another. It would be principled. And they would actually, they didn't scream at one another. But, but, boy, you could tell they're at opposite ends. And you know what? Neither of them ever convinced the other about a political point. Neither one. But one day, I walked into the studio and uh, Cal Thomas said, Bob, how are you doing? And Bob Beckel said, for the first time, I decided to be honest with one another. And he said, I'm not doing very good at all. And his life was falling apart. His marriage was falling apart. Bob had an alcohol problem and he was honest about that. And he was just, he was just, his life was just 
headed downhill fast, you know, without brakes. And um, Cal looked at him and he said, hey, we got to go and do this segment. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk afterwards. And they went on, did that segment. Of course, they went at one another, you know, back and forth about this political issue. And Bob Beckel said, I really thought he'd walk out of the studio and never remember that. And as soon as the segment was over, Cal Thomas said, hey, hey, let's, let's go talk. And they went and talked, and they began a conversation that lasted for years, for years. It didn't happen that day until Bob Beckel gave his life to Jesus Christ. He still hasn't changed many of his political views. But he was loved into the Christian faith. When, when a reporter asked him once, what was it that caused Cal Thomas to get through to you? Bob Beckel said, Cal Thomas really cared about me. He loved me. That's what he's saying. Folks, in a world that is increasingly hostile to our message, we've got to figure this out. That it is love that will win the day for the cause of Christ. It is love. It is love at the church at Shepherd. It is love at our West Campus. It's love downtown. It's love in your workplace. It's love in your school. It is love that is what will flow into people's lives and open their heart to the truth of the gospel. Our love ought to be plentiful. Secondly, our love should be perceptive. Our love should be perceptive. Now, this is where we as Christians in this culture get tripped up. Because what some people seem to be saying to us is, well, love just ought to be naive. Love ought to accept everything. Love ought to tolerate everything. If you really love, you never, ever disagree with another person. That's what our culture says. But let me remind you of something. Jesus really, deeply loved people, right? Is that true? Jesus really loved people. Jesus also looked at a young man who was called the rich young ruler in Scripture, and he confronted him about his covetousness, about his greed. Jesus looked at a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and he said to her that he didn't condemn her, but go and sin no more. Jesus loved people, but he called on them to repent And to change. And here's how. Jesus says your love isn't to be blind. It's to be biblically informed. Because the twin banks of a river are knowledge and discernment. Look back at the text down at verse 9 again. He says, I pray that your love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. It's like love is like a river. And knowledge and discernment are banks of that river. And as long as love flows within the banks, it is productive and it's constructive. But you allow love to get outside of the parameters that God has established, and it is destructive. It's devastating sometimes. You look at areas that have been flooded. When, when water flows to the channel, it turns the turbines on a hydroelectric dam or it provides recreation areas. When water's in the channel, it's great. When water gets out of the channel, it's destructive. And that's what Paul is saying. So here's, here's what he says are the twin banks of this river. He says, first of all, I want it to abound in real knowledge. 
Knowledge asks this question. What is right? The word is epinosis in the Greek New Testament. It means the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his will, the knowledge of truth. When he talks about knowledge, he's not just talking about being really smart. He's talking about understanding who God is and what God has said. You see, knowledge says what is right. Love must always be within the bounds, and it must always be expressed within the bounds of what God's Word says about truth. Now, here's the problem for us as Christians. Just, I'm just trying to be honest with you, and some of you have walked through this before. And that is that in our culture, what they're asking us to do is abandon truth, just express love. Just abandon truth. Abandon your knowledge is what they're saying. But the Bible informs us, and, and we can't do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter about love that gets read at a lot of weddings, though it doesn't have anything to do with wedding because it's not about the romantic kind of love, it's about the God kind of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says this, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Let me put that a little simpler for you. Love does not celebrate sin. Love does not celebrate sin. If the Bible calls something a sin, we have no right to edit and reframe that in any other way. This month's uh, cover story of GQ magazine. I am not a subscriber, but this month's cover story is about Justin Bieber. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Justin Bieber has caused me to repent about something, and this is honest as I can be. About two years ago, I read the stories that he had converted to Christianity, and I went, yeah, right. Yeah, right. This is the guy who preaches that God's grace can change anybody and I was the skeptic in that moment. And I've had to say to God, God, I was wrong about that. Because his faith seems to me to be very, very genuine. And when you, you read the article, if you were to read that article, uh, you'd be surprised by it. First of all, I thought, well, this is going to be a hit piece on his faith if it's about his faith. I thought this is just going to, you know, kind of be to pick that apart. But it actually wasn't. But I want you to listen to a paragraph that got my attention in regard to this love doesn't celebrate sin. The writer of the article, Zach Barron, writes this. He made every mistake a child star can make, including the ones that nearly destroyed him. Now, fortified by God, his marriage, and a new album, Justin Bieber is putting his life back together one positive, deliberate step at a time. Here it is. Justin used to brag about booze, drugs, and loose women. But now he talks about his love for God and faith. Rather than glory and brag about his past sins, he now talks about the shame his former life in drugs and promiscuity brought him and his marriage. He talks about what it is to feel empty inside and what it means to feel full. See, Justin's caused me to repent. 
He really did. Because he's not glorying in his sin. He's not celebrating sin. Love doesn't celebrate sin. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now that is the tension that we are all going to have to walk in in this culture. When we are called on by people who are celebrating sin in the streets, that if we love them, we've got to stop preaching truth. Paul says, no, no, let your love abound, but in knowledge. Second, he says, the second bank of that river is discernment. You don't just ask what is, what is right, but discernment asks, what is best? What is the best way to express love in this given situation? The word discernment means moral perception. It means a sensitivity uh, with insight. And discernment is a gift from God. And there are some people who have a heightened sense of discernment. It's a spiritual gift. But God can give any of us a measure of discernment. And as you read God's Word, you will grow in discernment. And as you pray, the Holy Spirit will give you discernment into how best to express love to people. Let me give you an example uh, just right here in our church that is so evident to me. Our church recognizes that we have a significant homeless population in our city. And uh, here at our downtown campus, there uh, is we, we see those numbers pretty regularly. Now, we love them. We want to serve them. We want to do what is best. But here's what we figured out. The best way for us as a church to serve the homeless population, despite what some of them think we ought to do, is not to hand out $100 bills at the church office when they drop by and want money. We have discovered that's not the best way to serve them. The best way for us to serve them is to partner with the wonderful folks at Faith Mission and Faith Refuge who are called to serve that segment of the population. They feel a compelling sense of urgency in what they are doing and expressing love for them. And so what we do is, is that we help them with resources, financial resources. Many of our life groups go to Faith Mission or Faith Refuge and serve. Many of you volunteer there. That's our best way to do that. That's discernment. A lack of discernment just kind of throws money at problems sometimes. You know, that's, that's kind of what the government does. That's a lack of discernment. Discernment says, what's the best way to do this? It's not should we love them or not. No, no, no. It's how do we best love them. So our love should be. It should be plentiful and it should be perceptive. We need to be perceptive to God's word and God's will and of the best possible strategies to express love to people. Finally, our love should be pure. Our love should be pure. It should be undiluted with, without hypocrisy. Here's what the Bible tells us in verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The word sincere comes from a Latin word, Sine sera. It's two words, sine sera. It means without wax. When uh, people who made porcelain in the ancient world 
would sometimes get a crack in a vase or a bowl or something they were manufacturing for somebody. In order to not lose the product, they would take wax and they would fill that in. And they could do it in such a skillful way that if you just looked at it, you couldn't see it. But there was one way to tell if it was pure, if it was, if it was not cracked and it didn't have a, a problem. And that was if you held it up to the sun, the sun would shine through the wax and it would, you, you could see that crack perfectly. He says, I don't want your love to be glossed over and waxed over. Here, here's the way Paul put it in another section of Scripture in Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Genuinely love people from the heart is what he's telling us. He says, let your love be blameless. Let your love be without guilt. Let your love be expressed in such a way that you don't look back and have regrets about what you should have done or what you could have done for people. Take action now. God has put us in this place for this time. God has given our church a mission. God has given you a position in a workplace or in a school. And God wants to use you to love your friends, to love your neighbors, to love your fellow believers, and to love people who hate you until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what that means. That's referring to the day that we all someday are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us is going to give an account for the life we're living. And I have really grown to believe that one of the measures of that evaluation is going to be how well did you love? And sometimes I look in the mirror and if I'm really honest, I could do a whole lot better. And so I ask you just to look in your heart and ask yourself, how well do I love? How well do I love people who are in my immediate circle? Am I selfish or do I love? How well do I love people who are outside that circle? Some people are hard to love. Let's just, can we be honest about that in, in this room? That's, that's kind of a different sermon, but let's just be honest. Some people are hard to love. How hard do I try to love the hard to love? I believe God is calling us in our generation to be people who love and show the love of Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for your word and for truth. Lord, grant that we would be people who love one another and let others see that we are your follower, that we are a disciple. But Lord, let that love go beyond this circle. There are so many people in our world who are hurting and they are confused and Satan has blinded them to the truth of the gospel and to the fact that you love them and so do your people. And so, Lord, there is this hostility between those who are far from you and those of us who know you. Lord, let us be men and women. Let us be students 
who in, with every fiber of our being seek to bridge that gap and reconcile them to a God who loves them. Lord, teach us to love. In Jesus' name, amen.